Well, thank you guys. Wonderful. Good morning, everybody. Let me make uh, the podium move here. Well, my name is David, as many of you know. I'm the liturgist here at the church, but this morning it is my pleasure to be able to deliver the message to you. Uh, This uh, message in our sermon series on John, where we enter into a moment that Peter alluded to where Jesus cleanses the temple courts. This is actually a moment I requested to preach on when Peter sent out uh, the dates and where we'd be in John. I said, let me do the cleansing of the temple. It's one of my favorite sections in all of uh, scripture as it appears in John and in the rest of the gospels. And I kind of feel like I have a personal relationship with this passage. It's something that I've studied a great deal, I've written about a little bit, and it all starts early in my life, uh, going all the way back to my adolescence, a fascination with this moment where Jesus storms in to the temple courts and really wreaks havoc amongst everything going on in there. Uh, To understand why it appealed to me so much when I was young, I should give you a little bit of context about my adolescence. Uh, I grew up in Mission Viejo, California, which is, there's already people laughing, uh, which is down in southern Orange County. Uh, I would say Mission Viejo is the epitome of suburbia, Uh, and it definitely felt that way to me, this uh, young kid who cared only about punk rock music, electric guitars, and rebellion. Uh, to me, the, the worst place I could be was Mission Viejo. Uh, and to kind of give you a, a better picture of uh, who you're dealing with, I, I brought something that will probably uh, entertain you. Uh, this is somewhat of a classic picture uh, in my family. Uh, there's my beautiful family, and then... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim's having his moment. Uh, So, you know, when you are in an area where you feel kind of like a misfit, which I did, uh, and you feel a little bit on the margins, uh, you become a bit more uh, sensitive to some of the hypocrisies you see in that uh, society. And when I saw a society that, at least in my eyes, was uh, very much dedicated to the image of some idyllic kind of American dream, uh, where everybody uh, was wealthy and happy, uh, and it wasn't really something that you criticized, uh, I felt the need uh, to rebel. I said, this isn't, I I feel like I need to rebel against the structures of the status quo around me. And while I was in one way uh, growing up in suburban Orange County, I was also growing up in uh, the conservative church. Uh, And although uh, I was a preacher's kid and uh, in many ways loved uh, my dad's church, that even that way of the kind of evangelical Christian church was in danger of being something else for me to rebel against. Just another structure of mainstream society which I could reject. And in, ta- in a way I did. In a way, 
as I grew older and entered into my early 20s, I didn't go to church for a while. Uh, and I did rebel to a certain degree about some of the structures of organized religion. But there was one thing or one person that I'm very thankful I never rejected. And it was that I never found it in my heart possible to rebel against Jesus. And one of the reasons for this, there were many, but one reason is because I was early planted on with this image of Jesus rushing into the temple courts, overturning the tables, and I said, here is someone who is definitely not concerned with conforming to the status quo of mainstream society. And that image of Jesus became an anchor in my heart as I grew older to say that, no, this is somebody different. This is somebody who's impassioned for justice, for truth, and that cares about those who are oppressed. And at first, when I was young, this was just more of a fun image of rebellious Jesus, of the action-oriented rebel Jesus. But it became to more or came to re represent more and more to me this moment as I read it. So let's, let's read it together. We're going to read this moment as it, as it appears in the book of John. And so many of you may know that, interestingly enough, John puts this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it towards the end when he first enters Jerusalem. Uh, so we'll talk about that for a moment later, but let's just read it for now, starting in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, one thing I like about this part is it's so far so good. This is pretty mellow. So it's going to take a big turn in verse 15. And just the way the narrative flows is very surprising. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You can picture me as a 15-year-old being quite thrilled with the way things are going at this point. Uh, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now there's so much compelling in this scene, and there's a lot to talk about. But as I said, it's something that I've been reading a lot over the years. And as I read it, there's one phrase and one image that's continually stuck out to me. It's the title of this sermon and it's the overturned table. It says Jesus comes in and he overturns the tables. Because for me, the overturned table is one of the central symbols of Jesus' ministry. And to a certain degree, his calling of what he wants us to do. Because I think overturning is a central aspect to his kingdom. Because when Jesus arrives... In the full power of his kingdom, he comes to overturn 
the powers of oppression in this world, both in the systems of our world and also personally in our lives. We see him overturning the powers of oppressive systems in this specific scripture here. When he comes in and he sees the money changers, he sees the merchants, we see an immediate reaction from him. That's what's so jarring about that movement between verses 14 and 15. Something he saw caused immediate action where he had to drive it out. And if you're wondering why, like I said, so far it didn't seem like anything that bad was going on. Well, there's, there's good evidence that what was going on was a lot of uh, criminal or at least di- dishonest behavior. Uh, in, uh, evidence that the money changers and other merchants were taking advantage or pretty much ripping off the worshipers that had come in to, you know, try to commune with God. Uh, especially the people that were coming from far off, the people who needed to exchange their money for the proper currency. I'll read to you an explanation of this from uh, the theologian R.V.G. Tasker on his commentary. He's writing this about the account as given in Matthew, but it's the, it's the same uh, instance. He said, what Jesus said and did on this momentous occasion was a trenchant denunciation of the way in which worshipers from abroad were being cheated by excessive rates of exchange and by the exorbitant cost of animals for sacrifice. But he was also, in effect, passing judgment upon the sacrificial system as it was then practiced. It had become so commercialized and regarded so much as an end in itself that it was proving an obstacle to harmonious relationships between Jews themselves and making it increasingly impossible for the prophet's words ever to find fulfillment with the setting of the Jewish temple. So we see that what was going on in the temple was dishonest. But we also see that it was oppressive as well. That we have people coming from far away in their most vulnerable state. The end of a long journey, hoping to have their moment to experience the mercy of God. And we have people there waiting to take advantage of them. So this is an oppressive system that has taken place. And when Jesus saw this, he had to stop it. As soon as he saw it, he said, this has to go. But by stopping it, he had to overturn everything. He had to drive out those that were in authority, that were in power, and then welcome in the oppressed. That is an overturning. That is what Matthew would call, or what Jesus would say in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, a place where the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus is overturning these systems. And this is something that he does in the temple courtyard, but this is also a symbol of what he wants to do to our world at large. I believe we live in a world that's in need of this type of overturning. Many of us live here a life of relative comfort, We live in a beautiful city, we have a wonderful community, a wonderful church here, but it's impossible with eyes open not to notice the power of injustice in our world. We see a world where people in positions of authority seem often more motivated by greed or personal power. They seem sometimes unwilling or incapable of helping those in need. We can see a world where the poor 
are often stuck in cycles of poverty that seem inescapable. Where we see, even in our communities today, the encampments of the homeless growing and growing. This is just an idea of when Jesus comes into this world that he wants to overturn these, these systems. Because when Jesus comes in to our world, he comes in with the power of a new kingdom, a kingdom that he reigns over. And it's a kingdom which I think we see from this moment in the temple courts and all throughout the Gospels that's built on what I would call an overturned sense of values, an overturned sense of ethics, something that seems very foreign often to us in this world. It's where, once again, the last will be first and the first will be last. And this might be something that John's trying to get across to us in this uh, gospel. Uh, about the placement of this scene at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, N.T. Wright writes this. He says, when you take it combined with the miracle at the wedding in Cana of turning the water into wine, he says, in these two vivid scenes of chapter 2, John has introduced us to almost all of the major themes of the gospel story and has given us food for thought about where it's all going. When he turns the water into wine, we see the miraculous authority he has over creation. But then when we see him going into the temple courts, we see what he's going to do with that authority. That he's going to change everything. That he's going to turn everything on its head. And we see this overturned sense of ethics when he tells us who is ready for his kingdom. We see this in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to the types of people that he says are blessed by his coming. And you'll see a pattern emerge. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's obviously an irony here when we read this. These do not seem like the people who are blessed. But when the kingdom comes, these are the people who will be blessed by that overturning. These are the people who are the last that will become first because they are ready for a new kingdom that looks nothing like the world looks now. Those who have been marginalized and persecuted have little to do with the constructs of society that have become oppressive. They have such little amount invested in the kingdom of this world that they can welcome the kingdom of Jesus with open arms and ready, be ready for the full realization of a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of mercy, one that completely overturns the oppressions of this world. Now, to a certain degree, we're still waiting for that to be fully realized in our world because we still see injustice, we still see oppression, 
But I want to also take this symbol of the overturned table and apply it to our lives because Jesus also wants to do this work, the work he did in the temple courts in our hearts today. He overturned the oppressive systems in society, but he wants to overturn the power of oppression in our lives. Jesus wants to cleanse our lives, just like he cleansed the temple courts of the things that oppress us. He wants to cleanse us of sin, of the burdens that we have heaped up in our souls that keep us from truly enjoying his presence. And he wants to heal us from our sickness, from our trauma. And we see that that is his end goal, especially in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 21, we have another thing that we only get in one of the Gospels. At the end of his discussion of the cleansing of the temple, Matthew ends it like this. He said, It's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is him driving out the money changers. But then something new happens in Matthew. In chapter 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And in this, we see a pattern of Jesus cleansing and then healing. He comes into our lives to cleanse us of sin, to cleanse us of the powers of oppression in our lives so that he can heal us. He did this in the temple. He cleansed the temple. We see this happen. And when we realize that, there's new meaning to the words that Paul spoke to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. When we see how Jesus wanted to redeem the temple and then we realize that we are a temple for the dwelling of his Spirit, we see he wants to do the same to us. He cleansed the temple because he loved the temple. He calls it his Father's house. And he wants to cleanse us so that we may also be a dwelling place for his spirit. He wants to cleanse and then heal in our lives because he loves us. In a moment, we'll have a chance to take communion together. We'll have a chance to take that intimate moment with God when we take the elements. And we'll have a chance to let him come in cleanse us, and then be open to his healing power. And I want to close with one more metaphor, one more symbol. I told you that when I was young, I saw it, this moment mostly as, you know, rebellious, violent Jesus, and it was exciting, and it is. But when I contemplate what's going on in those, temp in those temple courts, an image has come to me that this is an image of the crashing surge of the tidal wave of the kingdom. This is the torrent of the river rushing in of the kingdom. Because when Jesus enters anywhere, he brings the flow of the kingdom with him. And against this flow of the righteousness of the kingdom, injustice cannot stand. Oppression cannot stand. And everything gets upset and dislodged, just like we can picture him moving in and all of a sudden the tables are overturned, things are getting washed away. 
we're seeing a moment of the breaking in of the kingdom in this place. And so what we want to do in our lives is be ready to be swept away by the flow of the kingdom. To say, Jesus, I'm ready. And even if you are going to overturn some things in my life, I'm ready to go wherever your kingdom calls. And so we have that invitation in front of us this morning. As we take communion, we can say, Jesus, cleanse me. Any of the things that have built up in my heart, I'm ready for you to turn them over and do your work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us and that you don't want anything to stand in the way between our ability to come to you. That you are ready to go to battle with the forces that oppress us so that all of us can have entry into communion with you. We we pray for your Holy Spirit to enter this place, to wash in like a river, that everyone here in their hearts can feel your presence. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.